Welcome to episode 100 of the Poptimist Podcast. And today we have my great friend, radio legend, producer of the Phil Valentine Show and super talker, Johnny B. Welcome. I mean, oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. Johnny, when did you get started in radio? Man, it was in 1975. And the secret to that is that I really didn't want to get into radio. I was kind of forced into it. I won't go into why, but my father uh, owned radio stations, and I started working there when I was 16. It was country radio. And my parents, actually, my dad was in country radio, and he also uh, played music and had a band, the Ranch Boys Band, and they would go out and play on the weekends and uh-huh. use the radio station to promote it. My mother actually was the uh, singer in the family. She was on Decca Records at one time in the 1950s and actually had a top 10 record. What was the name of the record? I think it was called Hiding Out. Oh, wow. Yeah. About cheaters. So you got some some roots in kind of like the entertainment industry. Where was that first radio station at? That was in Wichita, Kansas. I've never been to Wichita, Kansas. You lucky. No, nothing against the people of Wichita. They're very nice people. It's just not the type of town that I was comfortable in. I, I when I came to Nashville, I really fell in love with the place, and oh, this is where I should have been all along. So, did you grow up in Wichita? Is that your hometown? Yes. See, my parents were kind of like, uh, well, they were a traveling radio singer family, gypsies, tramps, and thieves. They really were. They they. Uh, my oldest sister was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and my middle sister was born in Shenandoah, Iowa. And while at Iowa, mom and dad worked at KMA Radio, and this, there was another family there called the Everleys that also was at the same radio station. It was Ike Everly and his wife, Margaret, and um, the Everly brothers were also on that station as youngsters. Was there any relation to the people who worked at the station? Uh, I don't... Oh, you mean the Everly Brothers? Yeah. Yeah, that was their parents. Oh, Ike shit. And, okay. Ike and, yeah, Ike and Margaret Everly. The Everly Brothers have some great songs. Oh, man, they were awesome. And what was really neat was whenever I got to make a record in 1980, it was a cover of Carla Bonoff's Baby Don't Go. Uh, Margaret said it sounds a lot like my son's. And that was a great compliment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're great singers. They harmonize together so well. But, man, did they hate each other. Boy, well, you know, it's, it's, it's like families. I mean, gosh, uh, my sister and I, one of my sisters and I, we, you know, we didn't have the greatest of relationships growing up. But at least it's better now. Yeah. You know, so I think it's just family. Yeah. Yeah. There's always an interesting dynamic, especially if you're working with family. Oh, gosh. I'll never do it again. Really? I, did, I worked with my family for a long time, and once I got away from it, it was so much more sane, and I also did better, too. I worked for a bunch of family businesses, like two that were pretty fundamental to like my life today. I worked at this place called BEK, and that was an IT shop, and I was a salesman there. The owner was a retired Navy admiral, but his, uh, his daughter was like the HR person, mm-hmm. but they, they ran things really, really well. Cause it was just like a small company. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know for a long time that they were even related. Cause they, they didn't even want the clients to know. They didn't want anyone to know. Yeah. It was like a secret cause they wanted to be professional. Well, and, of course. Yeah. And then I worked at Wildwood guitars out in Colorado and that's definitely like a family run, like small business kind of place. So I, I always really enjoyed working for small family businesses but they have their own brand of dysfunction oh they do well see like my working for my dad um i was given the worst shifts possible the overnight shifts in fact my first shift was nine at night till six in the morning oh shit yes and that was all week long and what would you do oh i mean it was just the dj and i'd play country records and i got real bored because it was about the time I remember Linda Ronstadt had put out Crazy. And I loved the song Crazy, but Linda Ronstadt's was kind of boring, really. Is that the Patsy Cline song? Yes. Okay. 
And I liked Patsy's version actually better than I did Linda's. Linda's just kind of laid there. Yeah. But I liked the flip side of Linda's. It was somebody to lay down beside me, which was a Carl Ivanov song. And so it's like about 3 a.m. And I'm thinking, man, nobody's listening from the station. So I think I'll flip over and play someone to lay down beside me, which I did. I got in so much trouble. Who was listening at 3 a.m.? The program director. And he, and because I was, you know, the owner's son, I got in probably more trouble than anybody would have. Yeah. Because even dad got on to me. That's not country. So after Wichita, like, what was your next radio job? Did you just have, did you come to Nashville right away? Did you live somewhere else? Well, I I, uh, came to Nashville in 1977. And uh, my father had bought a, he had moved his operations from the Midwest to the South because he had married a country singer named Sherry Bryce, who was Mel Tillis's um, harmony singer at one time, or, you know, duet singer. And um, so we came down here, and I fell in love with Nashville. I wanted to move here. And I wasn't originally going to join the family down here. I was going to move to Denver. Really? Yeah, because I love Denver and uh, had some friends there, too. And so I moved to Nashville in 77 and liked it. But in 78, I decided to try Denver for a while. And I liked Denver. It was fun. We And I was pretty wild. The weed is good out there. The weed was good. Uh, the women were beautiful. A and, lot of hippie chicks. Oh, man. Covered up. Covered up. Plus... My roommate, my buddy, uh, he was also, also at one time my brother-in-law, but he, uh, he really attracted women, and usually when he would break up with them, they would date me. Because <laughs> one of them, uh, it was really wild, we had a wild night, and I woke up on the couch, and I see this naked woman walking to the bathroom, and I went, wow, this is paradise. And I ended up going out with her, actually. Hey, you got to see it before you uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. before you tried it. Well, you know, I thought once I well once I saw this woman, I thought, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, Denver's a really cool place. I I lived right outside of Boulder for a year. Did you? Yeah, yeah Boulder's nice. Oh yeah, I, I can only imagine back then in 1978. I feel like it was just full on Colorado. Oh, it was. It was so much fun. I see, my friend was really. Out in Colorado during that time, you could, because marijuana was decriminalized. Uh, it wasn't legal, but they wouldn't, it was a traffic ticket if they caught you with one, but usually they didn't write any tickets. They just let you go. So my friend was real, you know, he was just used to smoking pot in the car. Well, he comes to visit me in Nashville, and we're in my car, and I had a black Corvette at the time, and you know, not not a car that would draw attention at all. But I look over and he's smoking this joint in my car. And I went, Danny, no, this isn't Denver. This is Nashville. Yeah. We'll get busted. <laughs> so were you working in radio when you were in Denver too? No, I, um, I took a little break. I was out in Denver for about five or six months. And all I did was party. Nice. Well, it probably wasn't nice because my mother had left me some money. And instead of investing it or saving it for the future, I decided I wanted to just party. And I did. Yeah. I don't, I, it wasn't a wise thing to do, but I also don't regret it because it was a great time in my life. So you were 18 whenever that was, you were out in Denver, 18, 19? 20. 20, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's how old Millhouse is now. Wow. Yep. Man, well, he looks a lot healthier than I did at that age. I look like Keith Richards, you know, and John Lennon. Oh, yeah. Like a combo. Yeah. Just struggling, holding well, on. Oh, just, oh. Well, I was just hardcore. I mean, there was no other word for it. I really, you know, where most guys, uh, if they smoked pot, they smoked just a little. I smoked a lot. And I pretty, you know, I was high all the time. Yeah. And I don't recommend that for anybody. That's the way it was for me when when I was in Colorado, too. Because uh, I was I was 20 when I lived out there, and I turned 21 while I was out there. And well, no wonder we get along. Yes, of course. <laughs> we have a similar path, Johnny. Um, 
But yeah, I, I had gotten my medical card and I was just stoned all the time and the weed was so strong there. I remember the yeah. first time I smoked weed because you're at that elevation and this is, of course, all the medical grade shit. Yes. I puked my guts out the first time I smoked weed there. I got the spins and I never gotten the spins from just smoking. It was always smoking and drinking that gave me the spins. But the whole room, it's like when you shut your eyes and the whole thing is just like spinning around and you're like, fuck. <laughs> Well, it was like that for us, too, because um, my friend Danny and I decided to take a drive up to the mountains, but we had done some hallucinogenics, and they weren't really taking hold, so we thought they weren't any good. The gravest of errors. Yeah, the biggest error that everybody makes. So we're driving to the mountains, and he's got... Pink Floyd, what was the name of the album? Uma Guma or something like that? Those are the Sid Barrett days? Yes. Oh. Maybe Sid Barrett, maybe Dave Gilmore. I'm not a big Pink Floyd fan, so I don't know if uh, who was playing guitar then. But the album was just basically a lot of noise. Yeah. I mean, just as scary. And so we get up (laughs) to the mountains and that low, you know, and... All of a sudden, I'm scared because I'm thinking <laughs> behind that huge mountain, there's probably a monster, you know, because that's what it sounded like on the tape. I finally told him to turn it off. I was like, turn it off, man. Well, some of those drives, too, up through the mountains, they're like hairpin turns. Oh, yeah. That's terrifying on hallucinogens. Well, and then what even made it scarier, we went to Red Rock, Red Rocks, and um, <laughs> and when we get there, there's all this bike gang. They're like, they're... Or I guess today they like being called motorcycle clubs. Yeah. Because that way the police will leave them alone. But we're driving up and, you know, in that state, seeing all those bikers, once again, terror. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) We're going to die up here. (laughs) That's before I knew any bikers, really. So what was Nashville like when you first moved to town? How is it different from today? Because oh. it's, I imagine it was very different back then. Well, it was really cool because I got here, you know, because 77 was the end of, you know, kind of the uh, leveling off here of the outlaw movement, you know, with Waylon and Willie and all those guys. And it was real cool because you could, like, I always went into Cedarwood Publishing Company. And it was like open door policy. I mean, you could just walk in. I hung out with songwriters, and that's how I met a guy named Zach Van Arsdale, who I really like his writing. And um, plus, he's a cool guy anyway. But it was a lot more fun. And it was a little more, it was a little smaller, more compact. And it wasn't so crazy as it is now. Nashville's almost become like, uh, in fact, somebody said downtown Nashville right now reminds them of New Orleans. Yeah, you know, I've heard that a lot. I've heard it be compared to that, and I've heard it compared to Austin. Yes, everyone always says it's like Austin, which I've never been to to Austin before. Um, I'd love to go check it out, but yeah, Nashville is crazy now. Like I, I used to hear my my aunt and uncle have lived here for thirty or forty years or something like that, mm-hmm. and they said it used to be Broadway was just like porn theaters. And yes. drug dealers and prostitutes. Yeah, it was dangerous to go downtown, actually, at it's, night. In Second Avenue, you wouldn't walk down Second Avenue. No, it's not. That's one thing that's good, and, and really, for as much as they make fun of him, Bill Boner was actually one of the first that cleaned it up. He went down as a, he dressed as a homeless guy and kind of just checked out what was going on down there. And after that, they started cleaning it up. And he was mayor in the late 70s and in the 80s? Yeah, I think so, yes. I heard a podcast the 80s, I think. about him and how he was, uh, he had gone on some national daytime TV show with his like new wife. Well, it wasn't even a new wife. He was having an affair with this uh, singer named Tracy Peel. And the two names were just perfect for each other, you know, Bill Boner and Tracy Peel. Yeah. I mean, it, and I actually got to meet Tracy Peel. And I really liked her. She was really a nice woman. But, uh, yeah, they were a big... They were on Donahue. Yeah, that's it. Okay, Donahue. Phil, I think, had even written a song that got played on the Donahue show. Phil Valentine did? Yeah, about Bill Boner. Really? I forget the name of it, but... That's funny. He'll kill me for forgetting. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so when did you start? Like you, you come back to Nashville after Denver and you get back into radio. Mm-hmm. Are you still in country radio? Yes, I was still doing country radio. And then uh, I, that was in 79 and stayed until 82. And I was uh, offered a job in Birmingham, Alabama at uh, it was a K99, which was actually a rock station, album rock station. And we were rock for a little while. And I enjoyed that. And um, actually, because uh, the station was getting ready to go country, so a few weeks before it did, no one was really guiding us, and it was all um, basically automated, which means there's no live DJs or anything. So what I was doing, I was trading out some of the tunes they had, and I was like putting more ACDC in and Van Halen and, and different things they weren't playing. And I would go home afterward, and I would hear cars next to me like just blasting the music. And I thought, wow, this would be so much fun. Yeah. Being rock radio. And I, my dad's the one that bought it. And I tried to talk him into going rock, and he just wouldn't hear of it. Jack Womack, traffic reporter on 99.7 WT. very good voice. Very, very good voice. And great guy. Whenever I trained with him to do traffic, he would show me all those old videos of what it was like because yeah. he is an encyclopedia of radio. Yeah, he really He is. knows everything. So he would go on YouTube and he'd be like, check this out. This is what radio used to be like. And he would show me the carts, like the oh, carts yeah. physically being changed out and yes. all of that. Yeah. And it was it was super interesting to see it because it's just a different a different world. Well, and I feel bad for young guys today because radio's not what it was. It was really wild. It was it was like being in a rock band. You you went in and people were, you know, a lot of people had drinking problems and drug problems. There were girls everywhere. Um, Dan Mandis one time asked me, and I shocked him. I mean, he was speechless and turned around and walked out of the room. But he came to me and he said, uh, Johnny, have you ever had sex on the on the air before or on you know in the studio? And I said, Yes, I have. And he asked how many times, and I thought, I I don't know. And that's why I told him, Dan, I don't know. I can't, I lost count. He went, his eyes got real big, and he turned around and walked. I'm getting out of here. (laughs) I can't handle this. I didn't need to know that. (laughs) And we love Dan Mandis. We love love Dan Dan Mandis. We love Dan Mandis. Um, He's probably the best program director we've ever had, actually. He's a very funny character. I've yes, never, is. I've never met anybody like him, and, and as a host, I think the thing I like about him most is just his, his stream of consciousness yeah. style. You know, he he kind of starts going down this path, and it just goes here and it goes there, and yes. it brings it back, and that's what that's what I love about WTN. It's like all the hosts are very different from one another, personality wise, and right. even inter- interacting with them. Right, because Brian Wilson in the morning, of course, he's like the serious newsman, and then Michael, he's the closest thing we have to a shock jock. Well, he's almost like a, uh, I, I call him a religious a David Lee Roth. It's like he's all over the place. Yeah. you can't you can't hardly follow him sometimes because no. it's so it's everywhere. His mind's everywhere, it's, especially if you're running the board for him. I, I've never done. Well, I take that back. He did sit in for Phil one time. But I have to say, it was probably the most fun I've ever had. Yeah, I like I have fun with Dan too. Actually. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was fun. But at the same time, it was like, wow, we're gonna be late. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. It, it, it's I always have a mini heart attack whatever working with Michael because you you have to put that background the bump music just high enough to where he knows. He's supposed to take a break, then he ignores it and goes for ten more minutes. Yeah, and then and then he'll take his break. Well, that's why I asked his. Uh, he had this guy named Tommy that worked his show, and I, I said, Tommy, why do you even bother playing the music? He ignores it, and it sounds weird because this music will come up. He's just yakking away, and then the music just fades out. Goes, wait, you? Well, what was the music for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have to anticipate whenever you're with Michael because he could also go to a break very quickly out of nowhere. Yes, he can. He's a he's a he's a loose cannon, really. Yeah. Um, 
when did you start like you came back to nashville after working in birmingham yeah it was two years in birmingham and actually got real popular there actually i i'd walk like i could walk into a club there's a club there called sunny dukes that was country and anybody from the station would walk in and they would tell people they were there and they'd go nuts and nice you'd get free drinks and girls would be hitting on you and it was fun. Fun stuff. Oh, it was. It was fun. Birmingham's not the same town anymore. It was. I was there at the end of it where it was kind of a... Because Birmingham's a very big radio town. They love radio. And they love radio people. Roll Tide. Yeah. Well, it, and, and the thing is about that town is that it's so into radio that, that they looked at radio personalities. Here, it's more television, I think. Yeah, you know, people watch the you know the local people and they're kind of stars. But you see here, I think radio people aren't as unless it's Phil Valentine or. But in Birmingham, you could be some midnight to six jock walk into a club and they say, "Hey, so and so's here from you know WRKK," and people go nuts. And, well, from what I've heard about Birmingham now, it's more of a, like a tech town. Yes, and it's gotten the, the, the crime's terrible. And it just started going downhill uh, around eighty, mid eighties, and it just wasn't the same town. Anymore. And that's that's when you left and came back to Nashville. Yeah, I came back in nineteen eighty four, and I was married to my second wife. She was from Birmingham. So, what did you do when you came back to Nashville? Went back to work in radio. Also, uh, was trying to get serious about a music career. And the thing was, uh, I had a great thing happen. It was in 86. We went to 85, actually. 80, it was 1985. We went to the Tulsa State Fair because David Allen Coe was going to be there. And I always liked David Allen Coe. Millhouse loves David Allen Coe. Do you really? Yeah, I love, I love David Allen Coe. Uh, He's a country it. expert. I do. Well, that's awesome. I do love country music, for sure. I, I do, too. And I liked David Allen Coe a lot. And so he's going to be playing there. And... I, and I knew the, 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 the fair director, the guy that handled all the talent, was my brother-in-law. And so we were there, and we were in his office, and he was really upset. He goes, David Allen Coe's not showing up. And I said, what happened? He goes, I don't know. And I joked, and I said, well, I know some of his songs. I'll gladly go on stage. I wasn't really serious about it, but was hoping he would take it seriously. But he said nothing, so... My wife and I just got up and walked the fairgrounds, and all of a sudden, this little cart pulls up, and it's my brother-in-law, Lonnie. And he goes, were you serious? Do you know his material? I said, yeah, I know it very well. He goes, hop in. You're going on with the band that we've got playing up there. And it was the most scariest thing I ever did. I thought I was crazy when I got out on stage because they introduced me, and all I got was booze. It was all these bikers, and they were booing me, and... So I go up and I said, uh, really sorry, David Allen Coe's not here. He's breaking in a new wife. And because he was notorious for having seven wives. Yeah, and, yeah. And they liked that. They started laughing. I said, we're going to take you on the ride. So we played the ride. Then we did You Never Call Me By My Name. And then ended up he with loves that one. Sweet yeah. Home Alabama after that, which is not a Coe song. But uh, the crowd went crazy. And they gave me a standing ovation. And it got written up in amusement business. And Tulsa World, which is the newspaper there. So I contacted, had somebody contact Kip Kirby here in Nashville, who wrote for Record World at the time, I think, or Billboard. And she ran the story, everything in the story except me. And she was asked about it. She goes, well, nobody's talking about him. And I'm thinking, well, hell, nobody's going to talk about you till Someone does. Yeah, so why don't you? I mean, that was kind of a big Well, point. it's the age-old problem in Nashville. It's like you have to have the the stamp of approval by the industry in order to, to get anywhere. At least that's what the illusion has always been. Well, it's not even an illusion. It's true. Yeah. I mean, it's all... People tried to tell me, and I, I wouldn't... Because I'm just not the kind of guy that... That's probably why I haven't advanced a lot in, in places is that I've never been a kiss butt guy. Yeah. And I don't I don't play that game. And because I wouldn't, I think I was kind of shunned. We can relate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've, we've been doing this whole operation on our own. I mean, Millhouse has come on probably somewhere in the late 60s for episodes. But it's just been me out here the whole time just doing this. Yeah. 
Um, well, I applaud you for doing it. Thank I mean, you. I, I appreciate that. But and I, I love doing it. I, I would do it whether or not anybody was listening. You know, if there's three people listening, I'll still do it. Yeah. If there's three people listening. One of them might be my dad, but <laughs> and my mom. Yeah, and Millhouse's mom. <laughs> well, there might be four now because you know somebody out there that likes me will probably listen. Yeah, hopefully so. <laughs> my wife won't, but. But yeah, it's it's just uh, unless she wants to bust me. <laughs> By the way, she's number four in the final. Um, yeah, in Nashville, it, it, things are definitely changing. But like, what I realized for myself, especially the past couple of weeks, is like, I'm, I might not be directly part of the industry, but I can kind of be like that fish that eats off the bottom of the sharks, you know, oh, in the sure. ocean. Sure. Or I can take all their resources that just whatever they're dropping off on the side, I can just eat that. Because it was like we got to go to Blackbird last week, which we were talking about right mm-hmm. before we started up. And that wouldn't have happened unless I was in Nashville and I was here and I didn't really have like a job job that I had to go to right. every day. Right. Because I've just been driving a lot lately, which has been great. But I have the freedom to just be like, yeah, so I'm not going to work at all this week and just go and record music. And that's awesome when you have that kind of freedom. Yeah. Because I used to. I don't anymore because I'm shackled to... Uh, that's a terrible term, but... Um, you're in love, Johnny. That's it, what I think you're trying to say. Yeah, that's it. I'm in love. But, no, that, that's the neat thing about Nashville. But Nashville can be a really tough town. I When I think about that, I think of Jason and the Scorchers. They were like the first... I wouldn't say the first rock band to come out of Nashville, but the first one that really got a lot of attention and man they were so good because uh, jason was very had this country voice he he knew country music inside and out and whole band did really but they also were rockers the rest of them warner hodges and jeff johnson and uh and their great drummer um who's now gone uh they were just a great band but they just you know, to L.A. and New York, they were too country for rock and roll. And then for Nashville, they were too wild and crazy for, for you know. Oh, yeah. Country. No, I definitely feel that way in East Nashville in a different way. I feel like I'm too too liberal for the conservatives, too conservative for the liberals. Well, that's my problem. Um you know, I it's like I wrote a song called "Time" that called "I Don't Fit In" because I don't. Yeah. I don't care where you put me. I'm just I'm a freak of nature. I'm just not. I don't fit any category, and that's that's why I can never be a talk show host because everybody goes, "Why don't you get your own show?" Well, for one, they're they're not going to move any of those guys from WTN. No. That's never going to happen. And for another, I just don't know if this audience would. Well, it's a different me. a different world now too because it's like we have the world of podcasting. I I would never be able to be on air in today's world, right? Like the corporate button down, yes. you know, got to watch what you say because it's right. like the kind of radio that I've I've always been attracted to. It's like the old school love line from the '90s with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew, right. and then Opie and Anthony. Yes. I like insanity, and of course Howard Stern. Yeah, back when he was still good. Well, see when I got. When I was doing radio, what really prompted me to do it, because I, like I said, I had to do it uh, because uh, I'll, I'll tell the story anyway. Uh, my girlfriend, because I didn't have any parental guidance after my mother died. I was just running loose. So naturally, um, girlfriend came up pregnant in my last year of high school. And so I ended up having to go to work and... The only thing that seemed to sound reasonable was radio. So I went to this broadcast school, and the instructor was a big Don Imus fan. And he played one of Don Imus's bits, you know, one of his comedy albums. And I thought, I love this guy. I want to do that. That's what I want to do. And I've always liked Imus. I mean, I, I liked him right up to the end, even though he was getting to be a curmudgeon. And yeah. I would hate to have worked with him. Yeah. <laughs> he, I I'm sure he was a Howard hard ass. Stern. I mean, Howard Stern would be very hard to work yeah. with, I think. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, those guys were... Uh, and there was a guy called the Grease Man in, in uh, Florida at WAPE that was just phenomenal. 
those guys were crazy. Yeah. You know, but that's what made radio in. See, you don't have that today. All you have is here's another 50 in a row, and it's the same songs you heard yesterday. Well, the closest thing we even have to that now, and this is not a knock on him, but Bobby Bones. Yeah. It, it's like this new, and he's a very inspiring person. I like Bobby Bones a lot. Um, Millhouse, do you like Bobby Bones? Yeah. He's a smart guy. He's got a good personality. He's very positive. All stuff that I like. But just that raunchy, boundary-pushing style radio right. is it's gone. Missing. It's missing today. And it's good there's people like that. That's why I kind of like talk radio. That's why I like working with Phil, because it does... We end up making somebody mad every yeah. day. Oh, yeah. You know? And I, I don't understand why people get so mad, because it's just somebody putting their thoughts out there, what they believe. And people get so... When I hear somebody say what they... was like Steve Earle. I'll use as an example. Steve's just a communist, okay? There's no other... He says he's a Marxist. Come on, Steve, you're a commie. And that's okay. That's what you believe. It's not what I think is the best route to go, but you think it is, so... But people will get so angry. Oh, yeah. It's like I played a Steve Earle bumper one time on the show, and this guy calls in... You know that's an anti-Bush song. And I'm saying, where in the song does it say it's anti-Bush? Well, you know it is. And I'm thinking, well, where in, in, in the bumper we played, did you hear any lyrics? No. And then the great one I always get, which bands do you like? Oh, I like the Eagles. Well, guess what? The Eagles are just as commie as he yeah oh yeah don yeah. henley and glenn fry were oh, big yeah, time they were. donating to political campaigns and all of that yeah. playing fundraisers oh yeah which it's just you know it is what it is uh, right i definitely feel like that that square peg in a round hole i feel like i don't have the the money privilege to, to back that you know what i mean yeah i don't either and it's <laughs> like i wouldn't want to necessarily associate with anyone anyways because it's like i work at WTN just as like a pinch hitter part-time for the most part I can't even tell people where I work this is the first time I ever even mentioned it on the podcast because I know people will will demonize me and I'm like well a it's a job and b everybody I work with is really cool and they're not no one is filled with hate no you know what I mean like no, no. one is filled with hate they're and listening to the shows there's sometimes I disagree with with the host or whatever sure but they always make interesting points exactly it was like Phil I don't always agree with Phil, but I think he does a good job of articulating what he believes in. Sometimes it can rub people the wrong way because he doesn't he doesn't hold back. I mean, he'll, he'll say, I think this is bovine scat time. Yeah. But, uh, I, yeah, I don't understand people that get so angry that they want to. I see, but a good example, and I know I'm just going all over the road here, but that's the way I am. But when Jason the Scorchers, their drummer Perry Bags, died, and I was asked to MC the show because it was a benefit show to bury him next to his mother, and I felt very moved to do it because the Scorchers were, they still are one of my favorite bands, and I think Warner Hodges is a great guy, but. Uh, and everything about the night was great. I mean, we had fun. We had great music. Dan Baird was there. Stacy Collins. All these great acts. And then it got late in the evening, and all of a sudden, the Phil Valentine haters came to the show. Oh, no. And I go up on stage, and I'm getting the F you, get off the F and stage, shut up. At this guy's benefit for yeah, his funeral. for his funeral. Just because they... You know, I'm thinking... We couldn't have left politics at the door that night. Yeah, I I don't understand it, and both sides are really guilty of it. They I, are. I think. I mean, when when did that happen? Back in the eighties, the nineties? No, that was recently. That was twenty. Gosh, when was that? Twenty twelve, maybe. So it was pre-Trump. Oh yeah, it was way before Trump. Yeah, I mean Obama was in office. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, well, things ratcheted up whenever Trump came into the picture. Oh, well, I think you put it best. You said this, and I thought most that hit it on the button. You said Donald Trump not only melted the brains of those that hated him, he melted the brains of those who loved him. Yeah. 
And he did. Obvious. Yeah. I mean, For, yeah. There, there's, there's no one else that had that kind of like stranglehold on politics. And I think it was because he was in the public consciousness for so long and he was already a public figure as the rich guy. That was his role in America. Like 10 years ago, what do you think of when you think of rich guy? People wouldn't have said Mark Zuckerberg or no. Jeff Bezos. They would have said no. Donald Trump. Right. And who do you think of when you think about the guy that raises your rent or has you you know, tears your house down to put something else up. To put a high rise up. Yeah, to put some, you know, Donald Trump. Yeah. So that's why they don't like him. No. And I can kind of understand that. I can understand people's beef with Donald Trump for sure. Because it's like, I feel like even I had beef with Donald Trump, even though there was things that I liked about him. Right. Well, I think this is what I told people when you had such a division of, and you had family members disowning one another and friends breaking off friendships. And my deal was you're, you're ending all of these long-term friendships over what Hillary Clinton and Bill, I mean, and uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. Two of the cruddiest people on the planet. Really? Well, I think that summer, the summer of 2016, we had a switch in our reality. Yeah. And something happened because that was a very, very angry summer. I don't know if you remember it. You were probably in high school, Millhouse. Yeah, I, I was graduating high. Or no, I wasn't graduating high school. I was in 10th grade. Yeah. Wow. What was it like in school at that it, time? It was really weird. I remember that summer being off and like uh, it, was, it was super weird. Not really in West Virginia. Not really. Oh, is that where you're from? Yeah, it wasn't really weird wow. there. But like you went out. Up in the cities there in West Virginia, where it's a little bit different, and it was a little bit weird there. Yeah, you could definitely. I, I went to a, I went to a Trump rally in 2016, just in case he became president. I yeah. can say that I got to see the president. And you're also a racist. Keep no, going. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to the, I went to that rally, and uh, there was no there was no like um, no protesting there. There was like. Maybe like one or two protesters outside, but not not at the Capitol of West Virginia. There was no. It was. I didn't know that people were protesting yet until he got elected. Tell uh, tell me, tell Johnny the story about uh, Bill Clinton trying to drive through your hometown. Oh yeah. So a long time ago, before I was born, uh, Bill Clinton tried to come through Logan County, West Virginia. Uh huh. And in Logan County, West Virginia, they were not fans of Bill Clinton at all. So they blocked off the roads and they wouldn't let him come through. Wow. Yeah, that, that did happen. I've never heard. Man, that's... Right. Was he president? Uh, I believe he was president. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he was president at the time. They wouldn't let him come through. They were probably not. trying to protect their daughters and the wives. <laughs> Ronnie Millsap came through next week. <laughs> no he problem. Was, he was allowed in. Well, it's very interesting you say that because my wife, uh, Glenna, is from... Eastern Ohio, and right across the bridge from uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. Yeah. And they're big. I couldn't believe... That's when I knew Trump was going to win, and my wife's dad was totally for Trump, and he was worried he wasn't going to win, and I said, Glenn, look at this. Everywhere I went, there were Trump banners, Trump... I said, you don't have that kind of groundswell. I said, usually when you see this, they're going to win. They were, they were hoping that I'll, I'll say this during that time period uh like in around 2014 i remember this specifically i had a lot of neighbors and friends that had to move and leave uh they had oh, to yeah. go to pennsylvania or they had to go to kentucky or they had to go to indiana a lot of people go to indiana for uh, jobs for jobs because the, in 2014 oh, yeah. uh in that area in my area specifically everything got shut down and when uh Trump put on the coal miner hat in 2016 at the Capitol. It was like everybody was really praying that their jobs would come back. Well, that's why he resonated with them because he, it was very smart. He hit that nerve. He knew what people were going through, and especially in that area, because when you go to that area, it's sad because you can tell they've been waiting for it to come back, and it's just not. No. Yeah. You know, that's what's sad, but he was trying to. I give him credit for that. Yeah, for sure. I, when looking back at that summer, I remember, I never remembered such an angry time. And the, the weird thing where I think the timeline switched, and I don't know if either of you remember this, 
there was all those clown sightings that were happening. Yeah. yeah. The random clown sightings. And yeah. I feel like uh, a hole teared in reality and something happened. Yeah. And that clown sighting was also the premonition of like Donald Trump and his rise to, to power. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, the thing that really bothered me about Donald Trump, I was hoping that he, you know, he would understand what he had taken on and that once he got behind that desk, maybe it would have made him get serious. And But it didn't. It just seemed like he was constantly... I, I felt like I was watching The Apprentice. Yeah. And I thought, you know, Donald, this is not a TV show. This is real life. Yeah, no, for sure. I th- I Everything that was good about him was also bad about him. Right. Like, he, right. he was a, a yin and a yang situation. Because I can name a, a million things that I, I disliked immensely about him. But I can also... He brokered peace deals for the Middle East. Yes, he did. In he Israel. Did. And he helped out those that are in the entertainment business about their copyrights. and. Yep. Because of Kid Rock. And people make fun of Kid Rock. And they, sh- they love to shit on him. But he honestly helped out all artists by doing that. Yeah, he did. I mean, he doesn't get credit for the good things he did because he did do a lot of good things on top of uh, really making the economy, you know, sing before uh, the you know, coronavirus. Yep, but that's going to be his legacy now. Yes, it is. Unfortunately, that in January 6th. And I, rem- I was listening pretty intensely to, to WTN um like after the Capitol riots happened and the day that they even happened, I was listening to, to Dan's show and I was listening to Phil's show. Mm-hmm. And I remember both of them just being disgusted that this was even happening. And they're like, this is not the way to do things. And it yeah. was disappointing to see. And on top of that, on January 1st, me and Milhouse did a podcast. And I said, Milhouse, we should put this up today since it's January 1st first and Milhouse was like nah dude but on that podcast I said something bad is going to happen it's not going to be good there's going to be bloodshed in America a lot of people are pissed off right now just something along those lines I post that the morning of January 6th before everything happens so it was really poor timing on my part because it made me look like an asshole because I was saying that (laughs) shit's about to go down but you're not I mean you just you were observing and you were Right on. Um, I knew it was going to happen, not like you, ahead of time, but when he was making that speech that day, I was listening on my way in, and I thought, man, this is the wrong thing to do. I said, you're getting you're getting a bunch of good old boys' hopes up, yep. and it's not going to work out this way. Well, he screwed himself, too, because they were going to debate the, uh, the voting situation. Right. That day, and then the riots happened, and that's what ended it. That killed it. It killed it. See, everybody blames Marsha Blackburn, and I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but, um, you know, why didn't you you fight for Trump? They were going to, but that totally, there was no way. All the idiots storming the Capitol ruined that. They did. I mean, that whole thing. And Donald Trump was in the wrong by not stopping it. He could have stopped it, and he didn't. No. Yeah. And that's what turned me off. I don't know if he under, like, he understood in some ways the power he had, but he also didn't. Well, he, he abused it. Yeah. That's the problem. He abused it. He wanted these people to riot and raise hell, basically. And look what it did for him. It killed his image with a lot of people well the shitty thing is too is like i like donald trump to a certain degree i did vote for him in 2020 not in 2016 and now after after that whole situation it i was like i'm never gonna vote for another major political party ever again i'm only gonna write someone in whoever i think is the best choice most likely joe rogan um (laughs) but uh yeah, I, it just completely soured me to the process because I, I always held out hope and faith. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe he's going to do. He did good in his first term. We're going to get through COVID. He'll do good in a second term. And he probably would have done good. But it's just the the bullshit of him always like with the white supremacy thing. Right. He would never dismiss them. Right. Like during, during those debates, I never understood why he... Because I don't think Donald Trump was a racist or anything like no, that. No, not even close. Um, but I do think he, even worse, he understood that racist vote. 
so he played to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was his whole thing. He just wanted to get voted in. He wanted everybody to love him. Yeah, and that's not. <clears throat> excuse me, that's not going to happen in politics anyway. You're not going to have everybody love you. Well, he wanted to be Donald Trump, the TV show host, as the president. And he wanted to be the savior. Yeah. He wanted to, which was noble in some way, but yeah. he Where he really went wrong with me was um, I liked, I, I enjoyed how he kind of slapped the establishment around. That was the best part. That was the best part. That's the part I enjoyed. What I didn't like was when someone like CNN or, which they are biased. I think everybody knows that. But he would say, he wouldn't even answer the question. He would just go, fake news, fake news. And I'm thinking, it's not fake news, Donald. It's biased news. And that's, you should answer the question, but say you're going to twist it around because you're biased. Yeah. If he had done that, he would have had my total respect. He did do that in the beginning. And I think he went a little bit crazy and got sick of it. But he also egged it on. Yeah, he did. He, uh, he gave them those, he knew, his primary purpose was to be on every single headline. Yes. And it worked. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why he tweeted all the time. Yeah. Which was effective, actually. Yeah. I have to give him credit. Uh, people hated his tweets, but he was tweeting directly to those very same people that were, you know, the working class in West Virginia, in, in uh, Ohio. He was playing to them. He... He tapped into what was frustrating them. Well, on top of that, too, he utilized Twitter in a way that we never really seen anybody do before. Because this was the leader of the free world, and oh, he was yeah. going after Kim Jong-un, calling him Little Rocket Man. Oh, I mean, yeah. All the but name. all that shit worked, and that's what no one wants to talk about. Right. Because Kim Jong-un, he got in fucking line after... Donald Trump went after him on Twitter, you know, because he was afraid he was going to get bombed to oblivion. Well, and he see Donald Trump did that very effectively with uh, when she was here, you know, the guy from China, because they were having dinner, and I've always joked about it that I said I could have just seen the dinner. Hey, we're going to have the duck, but just give me a minute. I got to make a phone call. Yes, yeah, start bombing. Uh, <laughs> I forget what country it was now. North Korea? No, it was a... Gosh, it's exciting. Oh, I, Iran, whenever he... It wasn't Iran. It was one that all the refugees were coming over, and the name escapes me because of my age. Uh, and plus, I blame COVID vaccine. I've yep. got COVID fog. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. But anyway, uh, he, he, he bombed this country, and... Uh, and I, I, I could just see him sitting back down. Well, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he used definitely intimidation tactics. Yeah, he did. And very effectively, I will say. When did you start working with Phil Valentine? How did that start? That actually started in music radio in 1993. We started working at WLAC-FM. And it was very funny because I didn't think. I remember going home to my wife at the time because she asked. Well, I thought of the place, and I had actually met Phil's partner, Terry Hopkins, at Brown's Diner before I even started working there. And I said, oh, yeah, Terry works there. I think we're going to get along. And I said, man, there's this guy, Phil Valentine. I just don't know. I couldn't get a beat on him. You know, he was kind of standoffish, but he was nice. But I don't know if I'll be able to work with him. And so... We started working on this morning show, and I remember when we and I, he and I clicked, and it's a stupid story, but they were trying to figure out what car uh, David Koresh would have been driving when all that happened at, at Waco. A very tasteless joke, but everybody was coming up with different you know, car names, and I said he'd be driving a Chevy Blazer, and Phil... It made him laugh, and he pointed at me like, that's that's it. And from then on, he and I really clicked. And But he left that station, went to WTN in the early days when um, Gaylord owned it. And so there were a few years there we didn't work together. But then he went to Philadelphia, did very well there, then came back to Nashville and asked for me to come work with him, which was neat. Because I've never been in that position before where 
somebody wants you there. So when they talk to you in negotiations, I thought, I've got the upper hand here because I didn't go looking for this job. They came to me. So I started playing it and I started batting them around like a cat because they go, well, you're going to have to work two shows. And I went, no, I'll work this show and only. And they go, well, we can't do that. I go, okay. Talk to Phil about it, and I get up. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, maybe we can work something out there. Everything was wait a minute. The only thing they didn't budge on was money. And I classic. Thought, I thought, well, I should have done the money first. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. So was uh, I'm guessing WTN. Whenever you came on, it was already the news talk format. Yeah, actually, we had started at WLAC at, uh, AM. And Phil was wanting them to syndicate him, and they had made promises they were going to. And then somebody goofed and told him the truth, but they're never even thinking about it. So he, he quit, and he had to sit out his non-compete. So I had to stay at WLAC, and um, that was hard to do. But uh, we ended up going to WTN. I wasn't real sure about it after meeting meeting with them i thought i told him i said man i'm just not getting a good vibe off these people i don't know and he goes oh man don't worry about it come on we'll so i'll take care of you i'll make sure you know and there have been some bad times there but there have been good times too and i haven't been sorry for taking it when was the first time you met dan mandis do you remember yeah because i th- i thought man i'm done for because i didn't think he liked me because he, he wouldn't say much. He just kind of, hey, you Johnny? Yeah. Okay. And just walked on. I'm going, God, this guy doesn't like me at all. And so then I got called in to his office. And I thought, well, here it is. Dun, 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 dun. But he was very complimentary. He said, man, I wish I had somebody like you on the show. And feels very lucky. And I thought, wow, what nice things. Nobody's ever said that. Dan, he always has a million things going on, and his head is constantly spinning. Yes. Um, but he's actually great at, like, the one thing really positive about Dan is if you ask him for any kind of feedback of what you can be doing better, right? he will always give it to you, and he'll give you, like, good critiques well, to what you're yeah. already doing well or what you can do better. Well, and, and even uh, we had a recent – we had a guy sit in for Phil, and – they kind of played a prank on me, and it was bad because, as you know, in that studio, you can really get a lot of interruptions, mm-hmm. so I wasn't aware of what was going on, and then they started coming to me, asking me questions, and it was a put-up deal. The guy wasn't even an expert. He was just a friend of the guy posing as an expert to try to make me look stupid, I guess. And if you want to make me look stupid, you don't have to go through such lengths. I mean, it's pretty easy. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, ask me what country that, that Trump bombed and my brain won't work. And I can't answer you. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I called Dan. I was really down. And I said, Dan, I, I, I think I've just lost all credibility with the audience because I sounded stupid on this. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. Explain the whole thing to him. And I don't want to go into detail because I like the guy that was sitting in for Phil. I don't think he meant anything bad. Yeah. But Dan was just very cool. He said, no, man. He said, uh, we want to hear you on air and you haven't lost any credibility. Johnny, don't worry about it. Exactly. Just don't worry about it. And that's what I love about him. He can really reassure you when you're feeling about that high. By the way, are you working next Wednesday? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the follow-up Dan Mandis question. Well, Dan is really good at, uh, like you said, when you listen to him, uh, I think he appeals to intellectuals a lot. I think so, too. I think that's who he appeals to. For sure, yeah. And every, like we were talking about earlier, every one of the hosts has their own different flavor. And Dan... He is really like a, a logical, rational style conservative. Yes, he is. Whereas like by the numbers, he calls himself a reformed Californian, a reformed liberal. And he's very, um, he's very like tongue in cheek about, uh, about himself. Well, he makes fun of himself. Yeah. You know, I mean, there may be others at the station that poke fun at him, but he's laughing with them. Yeah. 
maybe not at home, but, <laughs> but on radio he does, and he's very good at what he does, and Phil is too. I think, nothing against the other guys, but I think Phil and Dan are probably the strongest. They're my two favorites. I think they're the strongest that we have, because Phil's a great storyteller. Phil draws people in because he sounds like you're sitting in his study talking. And he's smoking like a pipe or something yeah, like that. He's drinking a glass of brandy. And yeah. A big cigar and... You know, and you're in his cabin, you know, his haunted cabin, and, and he's telling you all these stories. And that's what I think is Phil's appeal. And plus, I watched Phil one time speak to a group of Republicans somewhere, and it was like watching Bruce Springsteen on stage. You know, really? You know how the audience acts with Bruce Springsteen? Yeah. They're enthralled. They're right, you know, they, they hang on to everything. And that's the way these people were. When he came on, man, they went nuts. And I thought, I'm glad I'm part of this. Yeah. You know, even, you know, I, I would feel that way if I worked with a, you know, a really heavy liberal that people went nuts for. Yeah. Even though I'm not so much liberal. Yeah. I probably am in some aspects of life, but not totally. I'm, yeah. I'm more... I'm more middle and probably lean to the right. Yeah. Where I'm at. I feel the same way. It's like... I'm libertarian kind yes. of, but but not even really that because it's like I feel like I live in the real world. Do I hate the government? Absolutely, yes. Um, but they're needed for some things, you know. We need to make sure that we have roads and that companies aren't and they're not always the government's not always good about this, obviously. But dumping like chemicals into rivers and, oh, yes. and oceans and shit like that. Yes. But and selling us out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just feel like there, there's no real place for those people who are just middle of the road anymore, you know? Or there really isn't. Well, what's happened to me is that I think the real far left and the real far right have been the loudest over the years. And I think they're the ones that get all the press because they're Especially so, with social media. Yeah, social media and even, even uh, media itself. It seems to go to them because they're the ones that make most noise. They're... They're kind of out there. They're wacky, you know. If they try to talk to one of us, it might bore people because we're not, you know. Yeah, we're not the wild ones. <laughs> yeah, we're not, you know, we're not in the streets with, you know, spittle coming out of our mouths, screaming. No. You know, uh, that, that that's why they're getting all the attention. And I think that's what's happened. And you're right. It feels like we don't have a voice anymore. The only one that really kind of hits me that he understands where we're coming from is Rand Paul. Absolutely, 100%. But even he is seen as an extremist now. He and is. And they try and label him as a right-wing nut job. Well, yeah, and the reason they do that, because the media, you know, in all honesty, and Trump really brought this to light, the media is so far left. They're not even being objectionable anymore. They're no. even... I mean, they put their own their own um, spin on uh, stories, you know. Like, what was I, I saw the other day? Oh, yes. It was this uh, townhouse community that, I guess it was in Miami, mm -hmm. where it, where it, it, it had just crumbled. The, the building just came down. I saw that, yeah. And it was in the article, like the, the lead-in. Uh, that that Trump's daughter and, and Jared Kushner lived right near it. I'm thinking, what are you trying to say? That they caused it? <laughs> you know, By existing? That's irresponsible. Yeah. That's irresponsible journalism. There's there's no real... Well, the one person I can think of that isn't a politician that is similar to us is someone like Joe Rogan. Yeah, I like Joe Rogan. Where, now, he claims he's liberal, but I don't think he is. <laughs> he's liberal because he has all of the liberal beliefs of like weed and all the social issues you know like racism but that's all no-brainer shit right in 2021 it's like right. yes all people are equal in our society it doesn't matter what their orientation is or what their skin color is any of that shit right. but he looks like what you think a conservative would look like he's jacked he's bald he yes. likes guns yeah he lives in texas now well see i, I look at him more as, as being a libertarian yeah I, he comes off more that way to me. I think he's mistaken that he's liberal. Yeah. Because even liberals, they're really not all that jack for pot. 
it's more libertarians that are, you know, the ones that you know, uh, want you to be able to smoke pot and not get arrested. He knows not to call himself a libertarian, though. Yes, he's smart. Because it'll break, it breaks people's brains whenever he's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm a liberal. But I was thinking about this, too. You look back 15 years ago, 10 years ago, whenever I was in high school, and the guys that I really liked that were the liberals of the day were guys like Jon Stewart. Right. I was always a big Jon Stewart fan, even though I wasn't necessarily lean that way. He right. always made me think, and that's what I liked about him. Well, see, that's what we liked, my generation liked about John Lennon. Well, it wasn't so much that we agreed with you know, his solution. It was just the fact that he was out there, you know, slapping the government around, going, you know, uh, people need to pay attention. And he yeah. was right. And he turned out to be right about the government, that they were screwing us, basically. I saw a great quote, and I brought this up on the podcast recently, on Instagram, where it said, remember when we thought a lack of information was the problem? And then right below it, it said, turns out that wasn't it. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on. Man, that went that, that was fast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of I course. enjoyed every minute of it. Me too. See you next week. This podcast is produced to you by Taylor Miller.